I'm guessing that no one here this morning woke up thinking about yokes. More than likely, there are many of you here this morning that don't even know what a yoke is. And I, by yoke, I mean Y-O-K-E, you know, not Y-O-L-K. Yolks are the things that we call the yellow part of an egg. A yoke is something altogether different. And the reason we don't think much about yokes today is because we're not living in a context where they are used. But earlier in our own nation's history, and in many places of the world today, yokes were used in agricultural endeavors to plow land. And farmers who had animals that he could yoke together to plow land was, was a very fortunate man if he had such. Now, there are different kinds of animals that were used to plow lands with yokes. Many places of the world today, you, you can see um, water buffalo that are yoked together, or mules, or donkeys, or horses that are yoked together, sometimes cows that are yoked together, and a plow is attached behind them, and when these animals pull that plow, the plow breaks up the ground, and it prepares the soil then for the farmer to plant and hopefully then reap harvest. A yoke is that long wooden beam that usually is placed over the shoulders or the neck of two animals that are harnessed together to pull in harmony so that the plow does its work. A farmer who had a good pair of mules or a good pair of oxen to pull a plow could get a lot of work done efficiently and effectively provided that those animals worked together. Now it's important to keep that in mind as we come to our study of God's Word this morning, not because we're going to be studying plowing or farming or anything like that, but because we're going to be studying the Christian life and the way that Paul describes the Christian life in our text this morning employs a metaphor that is taken from the world of farming. This metaphor involves a yoke. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 14, which is where we left off last week, and continue through chapter 7, the very first verse, which will conclude our study this morning. Our text includes in the very first verse what is probably the most quoted line in all the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been studying 2 Corinthians for several months, and today we come to what will no doubt sound familiar to you, to many of you, and is the most cited verse, I believe, in all of the books. So if you're following along in the Bible provided for you, the text is found on page 967. I encourage you to open up and keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be referring to this. We're just going to work our way through these verses and it will be better for you to follow along if you have the Scriptures open. So here as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Christians are called to live separated, holy lives in the fear of God. That's what Paul argues for in this passage. Too often, modern views of Christianity fall short of what the Bible teaches us the Christian life actually is. Today, it's very common to think that a person can be a Christian on his or her own terms. That is, that you can claim the benefits of the salvation that the Bible speaks of, regardless of how you live, regardless of whether or not you obey God's commandments. I mean, after all, is it salvation by grace? There are people today who take this idea, the right idea that salvation is by grace, and they completely misconstrue it to suggest, I can have Jesus and live however I want to live. Well, that is a very popular idea in religious thinking today. But make no mistake, that way of thinking is not the religion of the Bible. It may be common and acceptable to consider yourself a Christian and disregard what God says about how you ought to live. But that is not the way of Jesus Christ. The way of Christ is the way of the cross. In order to save us, Jesus suffered. In order to save us, Jesus denied himself and willingly laid down his life and was executed to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. Now why in the world would anyone think that a self-denying, self-sacrificing Savior would welcome self-serving, self-indulgent followers to be his disciples? Jesus himself taught the exact opposite. Have you ever heard what he said about what it means to be his disciple? In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, he says this, Luke tells us great crowds accompanied him and Jesus turned to these great crowds and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is, if you're going to belong to me and I'm going to give myself to you, then you have to belong to me wholly, completely. You have to be willing to walk with me and follow me. This teaching of Jesus about discipleship is what caused the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the last century to say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To be a Christian means that you have found Jesus to be so valuable that compared to everything else, you are uninterested in pursuing anything else. It means that you have found Jesus to be what the Scripture calls, what Jesus called the pearl of great price that makes all other jewelry insignificant. So that you're willing to sell everything to have that pearl. It means that you found Jesus to be that treasure that the man found in a field and when he found it, he 
left it there and went home and sold everything with joy. He was happy to sell out everything he owned so he could buy that field and have that treasure. That's what it means to be a Christian. To see that Jesus is everything that we need. If that's not what Jesus is to you, if you've never thought of Jesus as your great treasure, you, you can't honestly say, I want Jesus, I need Jesus more than anything else, then you're not going to understand what the Apostle Paul means in these verses that I just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, if you assume that you can have Jesus and His salvation and yet go on living however you want to, then you're probably going to find Paul's message to be challenging maybe even offensive to your religion. Because in the text, Paul makes it quite clear that Christians are called to live separated, holy lives in the fear of God. The way he makes this point is so stark and so abrupt that some Bible scholars, when they come to this passage, they say, well, this doesn't sound like Paul. Or if this is something Paul said, somebody else took it from another source and just inserted it here Maybe grabbed it out of a sermon. But Paul surely didn't mean to put this passage in this place of this letter. But that's not what I understand when I read this at all. I think that this section fits very well with Paul's overall purpose and message in this letter so far. If you've been here for these studies, you no doubt remember that Paul has been urging the Corinthians to... Turn away from false teachers that have come among them and sought to undermine Paul's authority as an apostle. Because as they've done that, they've also tried to turn them away from Paul's message of the true gospel. So he has tried to make his point by reminding them of the ministry that he has had beyond Corinth, but then specifically the investment that he made in the lives of those believers in Corinth. How he brought the gospel to them, the good news of Jesus. He taught them that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. He taught them to trust Jesus so that they might be made right with God through Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 6 verse 1, he admonishes them not to receive the grace of God in vain. That is, don't take this message of salvation through Jesus Christ and just dismiss it. Don't treat it lightly. Don't take God's kindness and love for you as insignificant. And then in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6, he admonishes them as those who have genuinely been changed by God's grace to open their hearts to him as he, the apostle, has opened his heart to them. And now then, on the heels of that, he admonishes them again to live lives that are becoming true Christians. The best way to understand the passage in front of us, chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1, is to see it as one long admonition. As an argument that Paul makes, a command that he makes to every Christian to live a life that is separated from the world and set apart completely to God. Paul puts this point very starkly in verse 14, and then he summarizes it again in verse 1 of chapter 7, and in between those two, he gives us reasons to comply with this admonition. So let's look at it. What does he teach us here? He teaches us that as Christians, we're to live separated lives. I mean, you heard that very familiar phrase, right, in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? 
Well, it's been misunderstood in many ways across many years. It's been misunderstood to suggest that Christians are to have as little as possible to do with unbelievers. That Christians should just keep unbelievers away from them. That's the way some have misunderstood Paul's words. Others have taken it to mean Christians should only associate with other Christians. So we shouldn't have friends that are not Christians. We shouldn't do business with those that are not Christian. Well, this is the kind of thinking that in the Middle Ages and even before the Middle Ages gave rise to the monastic movement where those who were convinced they should only associate with Christians in order to be holy would go out and live in communes separated from the rest of the world thinking that thereby they would be holy. And then the hermit movement developed that recognized, no, you can't even associate with other Christians. You just need to be by yourself and stay away from everybody because you're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Well, that's not the way that most Christians in our day would apply this understanding of the verse, but some would misunderstand it and then apply it in this way. They would use it to justify only doing business with Christians. So that if you're going to buy a house, and you're a Christian, you can only use a Christian realtor. Or if you're going to buy a car, you can only buy a car from a Christian salesman at a Christian dealership. Or if you're going to play sports, then you can only play sports in a Christian league. Or if you're going to go into business, then you can only go into business with a fellow Christian. If you're going to study, then you can only study in a Christian school. In other words, some have wrongly, I think, taken this verse to mean that Christians are to avoid having much contact, if any at all, with unbelievers in the world. And yet we know that's not what Paul meant. We know it because of what he'd already written in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul tells this same church, that they are not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he adds, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. See what he's saying. So I'm not telling you not to have anything to do with unbelievers who live like unbelievers. Specifically, in that case, he goes on to say, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to describe his own life and how he lived in this world. And he describes himself, beginning in verse 24, as actively trying to engage unbelievers. To the degree that he says, I become all things to all men. When I'm around Jews, I'll live like a Jew. I'll eat kosher foods. I'll keep their, their rituals so that I can have an opportunity to speak the gospel to those Jews. When I'm with Gentiles, then I'll live like a Gentile. Then I'm not concerned about Jewish rituals and laws. And I'll eat whatever food they set before me so that I can bring the gospel to them. Paul was not at all telling us when he says, do not be yoked to unbelievers, to get out of the world, to have nothing to do with unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, we're the ones who have the good news of salvation that unbelievers need. So don't misunderstand what Paul is saying in this passage. We are not to completely disassociate ourselves from those who are not Christians. 
We get some help in understanding what Paul does mean by considering the Old Testament background that he's drawing upon. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, this law was given to the nation of Israel. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now that's a very practical instruction. This is something that God told his people to do for their own welfare. Specifically, so that their fields would be well plowed and not a disaster. Why? Well, I mean, if you hook a mule up to an ox, you've got two different animals, two different natures, two different strengths, two different gates, and they're just not going to pull together. And so wisdom indicates that you would not put them together in the same yoke. When Paul takes that Old Testament idea and applies it in the context of Corinth, he's warning the Corinthians to think specifically about how they live in that culture of Corinth. And what was that culture like? Well, in Corinth, as you recall, there was lots of pagan worship. There was all kind of pagan shrines and small pagan temples throughout the city. And the social life, very often the business life, was intertwined with the worship that was associated with those pagan shrines and pagan temples. And this is what the Corinthians had been saved out of. And so consequently, it was very tempting for them to continue to engage in some of those activities that they once just assumed was normal and right and that very much was part of the culture in which they lived then. So if a boss were to invite a Corinthian Christian to his house in order to celebrate a great meal that was part of a festival of worship to a pagan god, it would just be normal. Everybody does that. And now here's a Christian though. And Paul says, don't be unequally yoked like that. Or if your mother invited you to come to her house because she was preparing this great meal that's part of a celebration and honoring some pagan god. And here you are, a Christian. The temptation is to just kind of go along and say, well, I, I know I'm a Christian, so I don't really believe all this, but I can sit at the table of these people who have worshipped demons and it not bother me at all. Paul says specifically, Christians are not to do this. And he uses this metaphor from the Old Testament to make his point. He had spoken very specifically and directly to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14 he says, I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. His point is, brothers and sisters, we're different. We've been purchased we belong to God. We can't then conduct our affairs day by day as if that means nothing. We're to be separated from those who don't have this awareness of God being our Lord and Savior through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see the intensity of Paul's command and admonition by the rhetorical questions that he follows it with and how he bolsters his argument. There are five rhetorical questions that begin in verse 14 and go down through verse 16. Do you see these? Let me just read them out to you. He says in verse 14, Don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And here's his argument. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
there, there can't be righteousness and lawlessness in partnership with each other because one is contradictory to the other. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Have you ever tried to mix light and darkness? <laughs> you can't, right? It's either light or it's dark. Where it's dark and you bring light, it's no longer dark. Where it's light and you cover it and make it dark, it's no longer light. Verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? It's a name for the devil. Accord, it means agreement. It means Harmony. Is there harmony between the devil and Jesus? Do they agree? Do they have the same agenda? Could they walk together at all anywhere along the path? No. They're enemies of each other. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is his point in the metaphor. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. It was a desecration in the Jewish understanding to bring idols into the temple of Jerusalem. And Paul drawing upon that, knowing that now as Christians, we are God's temple. We are the people that He inhabits. We are the manifestation of His presence. He says, what Alignment is there? What cooperation can there be between idols and God's temple? When he asks these rhetorical questions, he does it with a very clear understanding that the only answer for each one of them is none at all. No agreement. No accord. No portion shared. All of these things, these pairs, are incompatible with each other. And in the same way, Paul says, Christians are not to be unequally yoked, bound together with unbelievers. Now, the Old Testament references that Paul employs to further bolster his argument are numerous. He uses a string of Old Testament citations that he puts together and loosely quotes them at times in order to make his point. So let's look at them. In verse 16, he puts together Leviticus 26.11 and Ezekiel 36.26 and reminds us of the great privilege that we have as believers. When he draws on these Old Testament texts, applies them to Christians today, he says, as God says, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is this? This is God's promise of putting His presence with us and of taking us into His own identity. He'll be present with us. He will identify with us. And Paul says, when God promised that, He was thinking. He was thinking of who we are today as Christians, of what you Christians are today in Corinth. The Old Testament dwelling place was the synagogue and then the temple. As we read the New Testament, we realize that both of those institutions, the synagogue, then the temple, were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. They represented Christ. When Christ came, the synagogue, the temple, had its purpose fulfilled. And Christ is the representative of God's presence here on earth. Christ is the representative of God's identity here on earth. And when we become Christians, we enter into Christ through faith, we become the temple of God. We become the people of God. 
And we are separated by that identity and presence from the rest of humanity. Verse 17 draws upon Isaiah 52.11 and Ezekiel 20.34. These are two Old Testament passages that were directed to God's people in light of their sin because they had been taken captive by enemies under God's judgment due to their great wickedness and idolatry. And Paul adds to his negative prohibition in verse 14 a positive command that is built upon God's presence and identity with His people when He says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Paul's concern is that these Corinthian Christians not slide back into patterns of life that are incompatible with having Jesus Christ as Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is a great divide between the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of this world. Colossians 1 verse 13 puts it this way. When God saves a person, He delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. When you become a Christian, your allegiances change. Christ becomes your Lord, and you are now called to follow Him as Lord, living according to His revealed will. Your values change. Your loves change. Your desires change. The danger that we face as Christians living in this time, in this place, is that we will be drawn back into the unbelieving world's way of thinking, valuing, loving. The way that that often happens is by becoming bound to someone who because he or she is not a believer does not care about the commands of Jesus Christ and therefore doesn't see anything at all wrong in leading you in pathways that disobey Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize this danger. We're repeatedly warned about it throughout the Scriptures. What Paul says in our passage is the very same thing the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He tells Christians, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Just take that statement of God's Word and apply it to your life. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Your values, your desires, your aspirations, your loves are no different than the unbelieving world. John says, the love of the Father is not in that person. It's the same thing James says. James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's he saying? He's saying there's these two kingdoms. 
the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And when you're saved, you're translated out of the kingdom of the world. You're put into the kingdom of God. And if you still try to live according to the norms, the values, the judgments of this world and its kingdom, you're not a friend of God. You have become an enemy of God. When Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers, what he is telling us is not to get ourselves into associations that will lead us to abandon the way of Jesus Christ. Do not form associations with people that will naturally cause you to compromise your devotion to Jesus. That's the point. Now, many Christians today immediately understand Paul's metaphor relative to marriage. This verse, verse 14, is quoted all the time to say, well, a Christian should not marry an unbeliever. And that is a very important and right application of this verse. Paul specifically teaches that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. When addressing widows, he says that Christians should marry only in the Lord. Now this does not mean that a Christian who's married to an unbeliever right now should separate or divorce from that unbeliever. Not at all. Not at all. And if that thought has entered your head because that's your situation, brother, sister, let me encourage you and remind you that God gives special grace to you in your situation and He has special instructions to you in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 2 to read and apply. So He's not saying that you should separate from a Christian or a non-Christian if you're a Christian in marriage. Rather, what he is telling us is that if you're a Christian looking to be married, here's a right application of this admonition. Don't enter into a relationship that if it is successful will lead to a marriage with anyone except a person who, like you, is following Christ. Don't do it. It's a great application of this verse. But beyond marriage, this verse applies to any Christian as he or she thinks about getting involved in any activities or relationships that would lead you to disobey Christ. For example, if you're invited to a religious service that calls for the worship of anyone but the true God, don't participate. So if your Muslim friend invites you to prayers at the mosque, don't go pray. If you're invited to a Buddhist temple to offer up meditations, don't go do that. Don't participate in that. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever like that. If you're invited to a religious service that purports to be Christian, but betrays the clear teachings of God's Word, don't participate in it. If someone asks you to come to a Mass where the Bloodless sacrifice of Jesus will be offered up again. Don't participate in that. It's contrary to the way of Christ. If you have an opportunity to join a club or a league that prevents you from honoring the Lord's Day and requires you to forsake the assembling of your church together, don't join it. Don't be unequally yoked with those who don't care about the way of Jesus and would lead you astray because you're yoked together with them. Don't do it. Brothers and sisters, we're called to influence people for Christ, not to allow people to influence us away from Christ. When we live this way, when we take this seriously, 
Paul cites another Old Testament passage to remind us how God regards us. If you look at verse 18, he says, I will be a father to you. You shall be as sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Because we belong to him, because we've been welcomed into his family, because he's our God, we are to live lives of devotion to him, which will necessarily at times cause us to say no to that which everybody else around us says is okay. Because we're not going to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Now, I'm sure there's some here today that that sounds very strange to you. It may sound radical. It may sound extremist to you. Why would anyone live like this? Why would anyone say, okay, I'm willing to forsake associations that everybody else says is okay because I'm not going to be led away from obeying Christ. I'm not going to be led away from living to the honor and glory of my God. Why would anybody do that? They would do it because they found something more valuable than anything they could gain by participating in those relationships or associations. They found something that to them is worth everything. And that something is someone. It's the Lord Jesus. You see, when you come to realize that you are a sinner who's shattered God's law, that on your own, if you're left to stand before God and defend yourself, you, you don't have anything to say. You're guilty. The judgment is right. You deserve damnation. When that thought dawns on you and comes to be seen as true and right, and you feel hopeless, helpless, guilty, and then the good news of Jesus comes to you, that there's a Savior, that God gave up His Son, sent His Son into the world to stand in your place, to represent you before God's judgment and to take all of your sins upon Himself and to suffer the punishment due to your sins. And that as you trust Him as Lord, you can be sure that not only are you forgiven by God, you're reconciled to God. Not only does God declare you righteous, God calls you His child. When you realize that, and through faith in Christ, you come to experience God's love for you, God's determination to have you in His family because of Jesus, nothing else matters. It's the most important thing in the world. It doesn't matter what you get or don't get in this life. It doesn't matter what happens to you or doesn't happen to you in this life. Compared to having Jesus, you have everything with regard to anything else that you might have judged to be valuable. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happens to every true Christian. And so Paul, when he makes these admonitions, he's not adding something on to the Christian life that is extra. He's simply reminding us of what a radical reality we've entered into when we first came to trust Jesus Christ as Lord. And he's telling us to live in the light of that reality. Now, if you don't know Christ in that way, my friend, my desire, my prayer for you is that you will come to see the truth about yourself before your Creator. And that you'll come to realize you need a Savior like Jesus. You need Him. 
He's the only Savior this world has. And He's willing to save you. If you'll come to Him now, trust Him. You don't have to go through a ritual. Just trust Him. Believe on Him. Take Him at His word. And call Him Lord. And offer up your life to Him, heart and soul. He'll accept you. Well, not only does Paul tell Christians that we're called to live these separated lives, he reiterates this admonition and summarizes it in chapter 7, verse 1. And he does it by reminding us that we are also to pursue holiness completely. You see this? Look at this verse. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Look at the promises God's given to us. Paul just lists four of them here. But there are a multitude of promises that God has made to his people. Verse 16, he says, God's promised to dwell among us. The end of verse 16, he says, God's pledged himself, doubly pledged himself to us. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Verse 17, he will welcome us to himself. Verse 18, he'll be a father to us. He will have us as his sons and daughters. Now these are the promises made by, as Paul refers to him, the Lord Almighty. He's with us. He's for us. And we know this because of Christ who himself is God in flesh. God who's come to us. So what does Paul say in the light of these promises? Cleanse yourself from every defilement. You see that? Let us cleanse ourselves. In other words, put sin away. Put away every immoral pattern. I'd be naive to think that in a gathering this size, on this occasion, that nobody walked through the doors free from immoral patterns. And you know it. Maybe you've struggled with it. Maybe you've become so accustomed to it that it just feels normal and you think, well, it's just kind of the way it is, just reality and let's be realistic. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear God calling us, saying to us that we are to put away every immoral pattern. You see what Paul says? Of body and of spirit. Actions, things we do. Attitudes, thoughts, desires, imaginations. Paul's concern is to call us to a completely holistic repudiation of sin. To put off all sin and to put off every sin. He says, in doing so, we bring holiness to completion. Holiness is being so devoted to God that we become increasingly like Him. And we move toward the completion of holiness, God-likeness. We move toward the intended purpose of pursuing holiness in this life. This is what the Apostle John meant in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, Jesus, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. In other words, the finished product is Jesus. And God's determined to make us like Jesus. So John says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as He is pure. It's going to happen. Brother, sister, God is going to make us completely, perfectly holy. We are going to be conformed to Jesus. And as we see it, we believe it, then we put sin to death here and now. We purify ourselves from uncleanness. 
How do we do this? In the fear of God. With reverence toward Him. Remembering who He is. Remembering what He's like. Remembering that He's holy. Righteous. Good. Merciful. Do you notice how tenderly Paul wraps up this admonition? He calls these Christians in Corinth beloved. These are the Christians that have begun begun to listen to the people that have undermined his authority. These are the Christians that have begun to give credibility to those who have suggested Paul's really not a very significant apostle, if he's an apostle at all. And he calls them beloved because he does love them. And he says, let us, he includes himself. He doesn't say, listen, you need to fly right. You need to get straight here. He says, no, let us do this. Paul, as an apostle, even as an apostle, he says, let us do this. As an experienced Christian, let us live this way. Because he knows that even though he's followed Christ for many years, even though he's been incredibly gifted by God, he has not yet attained the perfection of holiness, just as no Christian will attain the perfection of holiness in the course of this life. But we pursue it. Brothers and sisters, do you think about this part of the Christian life very much? Do you think about God's holiness? How he calls us to be holy like him, holy in our actions, holy in our thoughts, holy in our attitudes, holy in our associations. The more we rightly fear God, the more we will purposely seek to live before him as holy. Christians are called to live separated, holy lives in the fear of the Lord. God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, who has become to us our Lord and Savior and has brought God to us as our Father. God has adopted us into His family and pledged Himself to us forever. So brothers and sisters, let's encourage one another to live as those who have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness. Let us willingly, intentionally separate ourselves from every influence that will lead us away from obeying Jesus Christ as Lord. So let me ask, with whom are you yoked? Who has influence in your life? Who are the people that you've let in at the closest level of your associations? Are they leading you to greater obedience of Christ? Or are they tempting you to walk away from Him? Parents, Who are you allowing or maybe even encouraging to influence your child's worldview, values, spirituality? Single adults, are you cultivating relationships in such a way that if this relationship you're pursuing is successful, would result in marriage? Are you pursuing that with someone who only is a Christian, a serious Christian? Will that person lead you toward Christ or away from Christ? Brothers and sisters, we need to heed the admonition of God's word. Do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. You know, Jesus one time talked about being yoked. He said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me. For I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He said, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're going to be yoked to Jesus Christ, you cannot be yoked to those who are opposed to Jesus Christ. And friend, if you have never experienced the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, hear Him say to you today, come to me. Come to me. You'll find rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for giving us Your Son as our Savior. We thank You for the instructions You give us in Your Word. and We thank You for this admonition today. God, there's nobody here who can say that we've lived as we ought to live. We've done this perfectly and all of us need repentance. All of us need grace and forgiveness. And so I pray Your Spirit would work among us. Lord, help us to make hard decisions. Help us to live wholeheartedly for the one who shed his blood for us. Enable us as your church to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, to live separated, holy lives before you. Reveal yourself to unbelievers. Show mercy and grace to them as you have for so many of us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.